Hello there, and welcome to Faith in Capital. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. Y'all, if you want to stay connected to Faith in Capital throughout the week, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I try and post quotes and questions to keep the old brain waves going, if you know what I mean. That is one way you can also support the show, but also support this kind of work, this kind of theology that is attempting to directly engage something that impacts our every minute of our every day. I just wanted to throw that out there. Before I told you, we're starting a new series called Blind Faith. So this episode, Jesus and the Way Things Are, is going to first briefly introduce what the series is all about. Then we'll spend the majority of our time grounding the motivation for the series in a particular understanding of the life and execution of a first century Galilean Jew. Bet you can't guess who that is. And finally, we'll wrap it all up with a short story found in the Gospel according to Matthew. Throughout the Blind Faith series, I want to raise the idea that there are common assumptions and general beliefs about the system of capitalism that are rarely thought about, discussed, or critically reflected on by the majority of people living in capitalist societies. On one hand, these widely accepted beliefs are often unconsciously accepted because it's what we've always been told. Why would everyone question something that is broadly understood to be the way things are? On the other hand, on the rare occasion these seemingly obvious truths are questioned, we are quickly reminded, perhaps through social cues or from various positions of authority, that these beliefs are indisputable and unquestionable. Now, some of you may be wondering, indisputability unquestionableness, are you sure you're not talking about the church of my childhood? Well, let's talk about that, because I think it's something mainstream religion and mainstream economics actually have in common with each other. They both tend to label certain theories or perspectives as unquestionable and demand our passive trust in and acceptance of said truths. This is an insight a guy named Jörg Rieger has helped me see. In particular, I want to focus on how many Christian faith communities often prescribe a list of unquestionable truths that are to be accepted as absolutely true no matter what, even if you think, feel, see, or experience otherwise. A kind of trust in the unseeable, a blind belief, is expected if you hope to reap the rewards or avoid the coming consequences. And as we've talked about before, faith in these circles is thought of less as an embodied way of being in the world, a faithful living, and more as an individual's act of cognitively subscribing to a checklist of beliefs about God, the Bible, Jesus, or what have you. For many Christian communities, The prescribed list of unquestionable truths often concern who and what God is, the divinely ordained nature of groups like women or men, how the world began, what scripture is, the meaning of life, what happens to you when you die, and even positions of power and authority in our communities and in our homes. Whatever the truth is, well, that's that. 
This is what you should and should not believe. This is how you should and should not act. This is how the world is and isn't. And if you think about these absolute truths too much, you might stray away from the truth. So it's best just to trust. And we know these truths to be self-evident, not from our communal dialogue and journeying, nor from our continual listening to the presence of the divine in our personal lives and in the stories shared by others, but because this indubitable wisdom has been given to us from an invisible higher world, a world unseen by the Almighty God, who is both beyond human understanding, yet has also made these truths very understandable, Buster. Now, all you have to do is submit to the preacher your group's true reading of the Bible, or whatever person is said to be above you. I think you get the point. Mainstream Christianity is primarily concerned with believing the right things, and forms its community around the act of submissive, blind faith. But mainstream religion isn't the only place in our culture that requires a passive, no-questions-asked, blind faith. The field of economics, we are told, and in our case the system of capitalism, is not based on opinion, perspective, or another world unseen. Its truths are pure science and math, in the complex mathematical equations, and the objective scientific facts printed in our Intro to Economics books clearly explain how right the theorists of whichever capitalist theory is dominant at that particular time are. Even when what mainstream economists, politicians funded by the wealthiest corporations and individuals, and, of course, the wealthy themselves, say about our world doesn't really align with the lived realities of the rest of us, their media outlets and advertising companies are quick to remind us that what they say is true, if only we had the faith to see. This requirement from mainstream economics, for the world to passively accept certain beliefs, explanations, or theories as indisputable and unquestionable, has given some the boldness to even suggest there is no other alternative. All you, the commoner, have to do is trust. It doesn't matter what the outcomes are. It doesn't matter if the trends suggest otherwise. Honestly, it's probably just a little too complicated for you to understand. And well, if you do disagree, you're probably arrogant. Just as many faith communities require their participants to uncritically accept their explanations of the way things are, when it comes to the economy and to the system of capitalism, we are again told to submit to the divine ways of the market and stop asking questions. Pardon the irony of my timing, but I need to ask a question. What might be problematic about labeling assumptions, beliefs, and positions of power as unquestionable, whether they concern theology or economics? What potential dangers are we creating for ourselves and for others when we say there are certain truths or ideas, yes, even our own understandings, that absolutely cannot be questioned, discussed, and certainly not disagreed with. Let's table this question and return to it after we chat 
about a first-century Galilean Jew. All right, all right. You guessed it. The first-century Galilean Jew is Jesus. I want to talk about Jesus in this episode because I think he problematizes the command for blind faith in both theology and economics instead of affirming it. As I mentioned earlier, this whole series on questioning the unquestionable on resisting the requirement to submissively trust, is grounded in a particular understanding of Jesus' life and his death by crucifixion. I believe our remembrance of the life and execution of whom Paul referred to as the crucified one has the potential to reorient and redirect our faith, our embodied desires and concerns, toward an alternative way of being in the world that critiques any demand for passive, blind faith. Especially when those demands come from the high pulpit, the prestigious academy, the nation's capital, and the top floor of the corporate office. And to be upfront, on one hand, I can't give you the picture or the uninterpreted lens for seeing who Jesus was, nor can I tell you who Jesus is to you. And while mainstream Christianity says it can and does, I don't subscribe to that way of thinking about Jesus. On the other hand, that doesn't mean we can't come up with some basic assumptions about the life Jesus seemed to have lived, engage the diversity of Jesus' narratives told to us through the Gospels and early church letters, hold it all with an open hand, and ask, how our remembrance of his life might radically transform our lives today. As a Christian, I want to remember the life and execution of Jesus, not so that I can quote Jesus word for word, or try and copy his every action or thought. I mean, maybe I should have told you this earlier, but I'm not a first century Galilean Jew. The consciousness of Chase has come into being in a very different world than the world in which Jesus lived although they do have their similarities. Instead, and I'm borrowing this language from Mark Lewis Taylor's The Executed God, by reflecting on the way in which Jesus embodied an adversarial faith amidst such great military violence, political subordination, and economic deprivation, I believe our hearts, our minds, and our ways of being in the present moment can be reformed and renewed in the way of the cross. To do so, let's start with the world in which Jesus was submerged, the world that Jesus shaped, but was also shaped by. Jesus seems to have spent the majority of his life in a place called Galilee, And if we really want to have our interpretation of Jesus be informed by his historical context, which I would argue is important to a degree, especially given that most Jesus talk usually rips him entirely out of the reality in which he lived, we have to understand what the people of Galilee, his family, friends, and community were going through. By the time Jesus was born, the communities living in Galilee had seen unbelievable imperial repression. Numerous empires spanning centuries had occupied Galilee because of its strategic geographical location. It was, Richard Horsley tells us, a crossroad of empire. But wars weren't the only violence Galilee had seen. 
Galilee was also a place of extreme poverty and subordination. In his book, The Executed God, Mark Lewis Taylor helps us grasp the threefold layers of power Jesus and his community would have known. The Jesus from Galilee would have been repressed by, one, a client King Herod, meaning a boss who acted on the part of Rome, as long as the bigger boss said so, two, an imperial Rome, a.k.a. Mr. Caesar, and three, a Jerusalem religious elite who reinforced the powers of both Herod and Rome at the expense of the Jewish people. All of these three interlocking powers together pushed the people of Galilee to the limits of survival, and often to their death. Jesus' entire life was submerged in a context of hierarchy and inequality, of political subordination and economic deprivation. But he was also raised hearing stories of those who had gone before him, who had in various ways sought to resist the death-wielding hand of imperial oppression and exploitation. With this imperial context in mind, I'd like to suggest three assumptions about Jesus that puts the way of the cross in opposition to the blind faith we are so often told to have concerning theology and economics. Again, neither mainstream religion nor economics are the sole proponents of this blind faith. Unquestionableness can be applied to truths by pastors, theologians, economists, politicians, and the wealthy elite alike. Oftentimes, all in one sweet, sweet harmony. But Jesus, it seems, wasn't a blind faith kind of a guy. In stark contrast, Jesus seems to have been a critical thinker, someone who asked a lot of questions, a skeptic among believers. And to be clear, I'm not saying he was the isolated thinker up on the hill, disconnected from the lived realities of a politically repressed, militarily crushed, and economically exploited Galilee. Nor am I suggesting he was a Christian skeptic among Jewish believers, because Jesus was through and through a first-century Galilean Jew. By referring to Jesus as a skeptic among believers... I mean to suggest that Jesus didn't passively internalize the worldview and beliefs handed down to the lowly by those whom disproportionately wielded political, economic, and social power over others. In my reading of the Gospels and early church letters, Jesus seems to have been a kind of adversary, a nonconformist, a serious problem for the long-established flows of power and wealth. Rather than simply accepting the way things are, as was explained to him and his community by those of power, Jesus questioned it. He questioned the unquestionable. He wrestled with the indisputable. Jesus didn't say, well, Caesar and the ruling elite are pretty wealthy. They got more education. They even say the gods gave them all this power. Maybe they do know more about why we're all struggling, suffering, and poor. Nor did Jesus say, Well, the prayers of the high priests sound so spiritual, and the pockets of the scribes seem to suggest they've won the favor of the Lord. Maybe I should stop questioning why their faith seems so unconcerned 
with the well-being of the disempowered and disposable people of Galilee. No. Throughout the plurality of gospel narratives and early church letters, I think we can see a very different Jesus. A Jesus who was willing to question when he was told to trust. And because Jesus refused to simply accept the knowledge, because Jesus was willing to critically engage the worldview handed down to him, my second assumption about this first-century Galilean criminal is that he was led to hold alternative understandings, an alternative vision of the world. Now, I don't think that critical reflection and rigorous dialogue necessarily leads you to have an alternative worldview. But Jesus' willingness to wrestle with the truths he was given opened up the possibility for him to see the way things are through a different lens. Apparently, he started to have different beliefs than the ones the ruling empire told him to internalize. He started to have different assumptions about the Roman Empire than the ones the religious elites told him he should have. He started to hold alternative perspectives concerning how he should live in the world and how God relates to those who are disproportionately burdened by the world's weight. Yet, merely thinking, preaching, tweeting, or podcasting about how oppressive and exploitative certain ways of organizing power are doesn't necessarily constitute an adversarial faith, or, in our case, the way of the cross. You see, there was another guy named Jesus around the same time our Jesus from Galilee lived. And Jesus, son of Hananiah, was also very prophetic. He publicly critiqued those who disproportionately wielded political and economic power over others, as well as the religious elites that sided with Rome. And because of his verbal critique, he was brutally beaten and flogged, but not crucified. What seems to have distinguished Jesus from Galilee from Jesus' son of Hananiah is that the former did more than talk, prophesy, tweet, and podcast. Jesus went out and met with the people who were most intensely excluded and disempowered, and he started to bring them together. His ministry, it could be said, was a kind of organizing of the people. Essentially, he was bringing together working day laborers when the fishermen dropped their nets and the Samaritan woman left her water jar to follow Jesus. In his mismatched group of disciples, we see that he was passionate about making allies out of unlikely allies who, unbeknownst to them, actually had common interests. And all this more-than-talk alternative way of relating in the world stirred up serious trouble for those seeking to maintain the status quo. As suggested by his death by crucifixion, a style of execution reserved for dissenters whom people of political and economic power wanted to silence or make an example of, Jesus' adversarial faith, his way of the cross, had to be silenced. What might be problematic about labeling assumptions, beliefs, or positions of power as unquestionable, whether they concern our theology or our perspectives on economics? What dangers are we creating for ourselves and for others when we say there are certain truths and ideas that are not up for discussion?
Well, for one, when it comes to theologies and economic theories in particular, when we label beliefs or positions of authority as off-limits for dialogue, we close ourselves off from seeing alternative, perhaps more holistic and life-affirming worlds. Essentially, we deny ourselves the possibility of realizing meaningful transformation. And another thing that can easily happen when our communities claim universal unquestionableness and objective indisputability is that we might feel the need to demonize dissenters and dehumanize persons who hold conflicting beliefs. We may even find ourselves rationalizing, even cheering on their execution. To put this into perspective, I think a story from the Gospel of Matthew might be able to help us out. In chapter 15 of the Gospel according to Matthew, the author tells a story about a transformative healing that was made possible because of one brave woman's refusal to accept without question the way things are, as was explained to her by people more powerful than her. And while I think the ways in which most of the early churches remembered the life and execution of Jesus suggest that the crucified one embodied an adversarial faith, that doesn't mean he always got it right something later theologians would eventually claim is indisputable. Starting with verse 22, a Canaanite woman runs up to Jesus and his group of followers and says, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away for she keeps shouting after us. Now, the Canaanite woman in this story is by far the most disempowered person in this story. First of all, she's Canaanite, and the audience of Matthew's gospel likely had some beef with people from Canaan. Second of all, she's a woman shouting in public at a man. That's no good. And thirdly, she has a daughter possessed by a demon. And what do Jesus and his disciples do? Jesus blatantly ignores her, and the disciples try to get rid of her. In verse 24 we read, He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, I know that the popular way of reading Jesus' response is to say that he's actually playing a mind game with her, to test her trust. And, while that is a legitimate interpretation, that's not the only way of reading this text. Another way we could read Jesus' response is to hear him articulating the common wisdom and the common assumption held by the mainstream religious establishment concerning vulnerable people like this Canaanite woman. Verse 25 continues, But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Jesus, in this story, can be seen as the representation of oppressive and unjust power. Jesus here is the pastor, the theologian, the economist, the politician, and the billionaire who is explaining to the suffering person the unquestionability 
of the way things are. You're not a child of God. You're a dog, and you deserve to be treated as such. Understandably, the story for many of us ends here. So many people have been pushed to places of great pressure and vulnerability. Anyone can see the desperateness and anxiety that plagues the majority of the world amidst unimaginable wealth. Even suffering known by those who think of themselves as middle class here in the U.S. And many end up internalizing the assumptions, beliefs, and truths handed to them by those who stand above them, myself included. But this story in the Gospel of Matthew offers us an alternative ending. It helps us imagine an alternative way of being in response to those who seek to maintain the hierarchical order of the world. In response to Jesus reminding this Canaanite woman of her place, she says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And while she could be heard as saying, You're right, I am a dog and I should stay in my place, her words could also be heard as a kind of symbolic act of resistance, which mirrors Jesus' hierarchical, destructive worldview back into his face. Because the words he hears coming from the desperate person he has just dehumanized stops him in his tracks and completely transforms his behavior. Jesus answers her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish, and her daughter was healed instantly. The voices of critics and dissenters, the perspectives of skeptics and those we disagree with, are so important for the well-being and healing of our communities. What aspects of the system of capitalism have been labeled unquestionable? What theories and beliefs have been rendered indisputable? The adversarial faith of Jesus and of the Canaanite dissenter offers us an alternative to the blind faith of the status quo.